Good evening, Mendonesia. Welcome to the Renewable Energy Hour. I'm Doug Livingston, and with me, uh, and not traveling in a dark zone in the swamps of Florida this time, is Chris Love, my my current co-host. Hey, how's it going, Chris? Hi there. Uh, pretty good. Welcome back to California. You've been doing all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, almost a couple of months. Yeah, wow. all over the well, you managed to hook up us several times during that uh, interim, but uh, but uh, today is really the last hopeful day to get in under the current grid connection compensation rules called NEM2, and if you haven't gotten confirmed by now, I'm seriously worried you're probably not going to be. Um, and so people considering solar, there's some changes that, that change how we, we address things. And Chris, Chris is going to talk some on batteries in a little bit. Uh, I'd like to make a link to one of the callers who called on the last show, uh, who had a great question about, you know, which way should I put my panels? And for grid-tied people, given the time-of-use rate structures where afternoon and evening is more expensive electricity than morning, just on that basis alone, you might want to bias toward the West somewhat. The question was, how much? You know, how bad is staying South or going all the way West? Is that too much? And... uh and my answer last show to him was last time I ran the numbers on the current time of use rate structure at the time, which granted didn't exist anymore. It'd been a while since I'd run that analysis again. But my answer way back when was that the sweet spot was pretty much Southwest financially and that South and West were about the same and not much worse than than southwest so one lesson is it doesn't matter if you've got a perfect roof that's facing south or a perfect roof that's facing west do it don't build some crazy expensive contraption that'll get it to point southwest but if you get a southwest roof that's awesome too and keep in mind our whole discussion on this is going to be uh, initially we're going to be talking about the direction you point the array for the new rate structure uh, which is surprisingly similar to the old ways, uh, but but pointing your arrays in general, um, it's assuming you have no shade, and we may talk a little bit about that later too, or very little shade. Um, watch out if you have a bias of shade to the east or to the west. Some of these things we're saying will be biased away from that shade of yours. For example, for off-grid people with no shade, the perfect direction to point is due south, period. End of discussion. True south, not magnetic south. Polar south. Um, but uh, if you're... If you've got, you know, a big ridge to your west and a low, long valley and a low ridge to your east, you don't want to be pointing south off-grid. You want to be pointing southeast. And the same thing would be true the other way around. So you off-grid, you would want to point, you know, somewhere between due south and the middle of your open solar 
access barring no shade um grid tide people uh i really hope you don't have shade on the west side of where you're planning putting the grid because the west pointing electricity is more valuable and so for grid tide people you should be pointing more west than south uh, if you had full freedom of choice out in a field or something like that um i did some interesting reading this week about you know various different analyses and there's pretty solid confirmation that uh that on the new nem3 rules we get pretty much the same answer um that uh the the sweet spot is going to be pretty close to southwest now there are a whole bunch of different variables that might bias you we'll talk about some of those variables one way or another from this uh, but part of the lesson is there's not that much difference um, in terms of production your best is going to be you know in terms of kilowatt hour production offsetting greenhouse gases production due south will produce the most kilowatt hours but if you're talking financially uh how how much those kilowatt hours are worth it's worth dropping a few kilowatt hours and significantly raising what those excess kilowatt hours are worth to the grid uh, by pointing a little westward um uh there's and then what that effectively means is that you get some more of the late day production rather than just middle of the day production. And, so go, and God forbid, morning production. Yeah, you're getting your generation during a time of higher use. So you have a greater chance to offset your immediate use in your household right then and there. So it subtracts from what you would get from the utility or yeah. send back to the facility. Not only do most people use more in the late afternoon, early evening, in the, in the summertime when there's still sun, anyhow, um, the the electric rates are highest then. They didn't used to be. That used to be what was considered park peak, but there's so much solar online now that's created a big dip in the middle of the day in terms of supply constraint that the peak supply constraint some people call it peak demand but it's not peak demand is happening in the evening um and so the price of electricity starts going up uh and most people's rate structures it's going to be between 4 and 9 p.m where you're at your highest electric rate and so any electricity you can generate any extra electricity you can generate from 4 till you know 7, 8 p.m. in the summertime is going to be worth quite a bit more than what you generate in the in the morning. And that and that's what causes these biases. Real quick uh, caption in terms of financial returns um, on the most likely rate structures you're going to be on and the most typical consumption pattern, because it does depend somewhat on what your consumption pattern is, uh, is that if you're, if you're, uh, if you're Southwest, uh, you're you're going to be about five percent better return on investment than South or West, and about twenty percent better than East. And we don't want to face North here in the the uh, 
Now, it's, you know, it's not outrageous to face north if your slope is two degrees because that's basically flat, especially if you're milking higher rates in the summertime and not worried about production in the winter. Um, but that's pushing it. Um, yeah, then we can always look at shading. <laughs> yeah, well, if you've got shading on the west, then, then you know, go south, young man. Um, yeah. And even southeast, if that's the way the roof is going. E and east isn't that bad in terms of kilowatt-hour production. It's about 16% less than the maximum orientation. But in terms of financial production, given the biases in pricing morning to afternoon, it's about 20% less uh, than southwest and about 15% less than south financially. So it's not outrageous. It's not not doable. It doesn't kill the project. But if you've got a choice, go west, not east. And are you still seeing that the, you know, the sweet spot for tilt on grid tide would be about 21 degrees at our latitude? Um, yeah, it's going to be, you know, pretty universally. And it was interesting to see because this study included, you know, different answers for different regions in California. You know, L.A., San Diego, Sacramento, San Francisco, uh, sorts of answers. Uh, and it was interesting to see how things changed slightly but it was it was hardly any it was you know a couple of degrees and and the difference in you know the peak of a sine function or whatever it is on a couple of degrees is essentially you know a tenth of one percent in terms of what the actual number is um yeah so so there's this there's this sweet spot that's pretty wide around the sweet spot. Oh, you're, you're fuzzing out. Did you do something to your mic? Yeah, that would just be a small number of kilowatt hours over a year's time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, another real significant issue, and still I'm talking about without batteries, what's the best direction to point? Uh, and all this discussion so far has been. Uh, on the new rules, uh, we used to think it was pretty reasonable to shoot as high as, you know, 90% of your annual consumption. When you designed a grid type system, Chris, what, what percentage of their annual consumption would you be shooting for, typically? Um, in the solar world? In the grid tie solar world, yeah. Grid tie solar, um, typically in the last, you know, couple of years, actually, you know, pushing into the 100, 110% range. Really? Why would you go over 100? Um, mostly because, you know, almost all my clients, as much as they're trying to be more efficient, are actually increasing their usage over time. Uh, and they're also um, proud to say there's zero carbon footprint. What's that? And they're also probably proud to say there's zero carbon footprint to their friends. Well, they're, you know, some of them are hoping to say that for their electrical use. Mm -hmm. um, most people still have a lot of gas appliances, so it's a little easier to hit those electrical marks. But, you know, adding in, um, you know, that when, when you do the actual final forms with PG&E and what calculates the actual production of your system, 
their numbers actually benefit, you know, like lean towards the client about 5% and that they, they derate those systems much more strongly than we do yeah. as designers. And well, they're, they're looking to avoid arguments. Yeah. I've, I've, I've always wondered why that conflict, you know, and that there's some really old calculation methods that PV Syst did in the like way back um, that they still use for some reason and haven't upgraded. And, you know, because even though you do the application online, you end up, you know, with a form you actually have to fill in the end once everything's approved <laughs> and you're, you know, going in to get your interconnection agreement is the next step. Um, well, they so, want you to do that all online on online forms with no feedback. Yeah. Well, luckily for myself, it's worked out, but we haven't had any systems where they had to change you know, transformers and such or, yeah. or triggers into the system. Well, Alex tells a story when he put his system in and the transformer PG&E had on file for that location was wrong and denied his system. Huh. And, and he invited the PG&E rep out to come look at the transformer with him. See, it's 27. It's not 15 <laughs> that you have on file. And he said, oh, you're right. I'll correct that. And went back in and passed his paperwork and corrected their database. <coughs> but no, no, this, the, the, I have a client today who's system was inspected two months ago they filled out their interconnection agreement and uh and pg uh you know basically replied through the application form without an email or a phone call and they didn't realize it and we finally figured out how to get in there and see that new new function in the application process and uh and it said, oh, you didn't include the uh, signed-off permit, which we had, and we did it again, and and then didn't hear back from them for a week and gave them a call, and they said, well, geez, yeah, no, it looks like you got everything in. Uh, it, it won't be more than seven or ten days, and 12 days later, we gave them a call, and... Um, well, yeah, no, it's on our side, it's on our side, and as we got closer and closer to the deadline... Uh, calling more frequently and yep, no, you'll, you'll get it shortly. And today they said, Oh no, you never replied to this email we sent way back in such and such a time that actually had gone to my client's spam folder. Oh. And, uh, and, and it was hysterical. All it was, was a confirmation that you actually installed what was on the original application. And we had already been inspected when we filled out the original application. Right. Which is perhaps why they had asked us to submit the signed off building permit because they weren't used to people having that already signed off at the initial filling out of the application. I don't know. Anyhow, uh, I hope they got their act together and gave her a confirmation. And if they put her on any M3... I'm going to fight for her pro bono. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that there that might be an easy one to to push hard back on, considering the you know. Well, 
Anything, another, uh, anyhow, another interesting change on the NEM3 rules uh, and rate structures is it doesn't behoove you to put in as big of a system as you used to uh, want to do or be able to do at a similar return on investment, at least if you're looking at financial returns and not, and not, not trying to save the world. What's that? Solar only. Solar only. No batteries yet. We'll we'll talk about batteries in a, in a minute. Uh, if you if you're not doing batteries, if you're doing the least expensive type of system, that's the most efficient and has the least ongoing operating costs. I'm hinting toward a a thought on the battery side of things. Um, the problem is that you're going to be overproducing during some of the cheaper rate times of the day. The majority of your overproduction is going to be when their compensation rates for your overflow are at their lowest levels because all the other solar that's overflowing too. Um, and so it, anything you overproduce is much lower return on investment than solar you produce that you actually consume as you produce it. And when you start running that mix into the equation, we shift from, you know, a sweet spot of about, and I'm still talking about the economic return sweet spot and not a, I want to be a hundred percent bragging rights or something like that. Um, uh, the sweet spot before w on the old NEM2 was about 90% or so. And I would generally shoot for, you know, 80% or so. Um, and and unless the client told me, I don't care, I want to be 100% because I want to zero my carbon footprint or what have you. And 110% even, but that's even, even harder on the financials. Um, you don't want to do that unless you got lots of money to toss around. But uh, the the new sweet spot on the new rate structure is much, much smaller so that a much higher percentage of what your solar produce gets consumed by you at the high-value retail rate, which we used to get for our overflow, but now we get, you know, five cents instead of 50 cents or you know, it depends on your rate structure, but it can be a really big difference now for your overflow. So you don't want to overflow. Um, so that, uh, there's also a slight uh, issue on orientation of your array, depending on when you consume your electricity. It was interesting. This study broke up residential consumers into four categories, Chris. One was morning heavy which was pretty rare, but a distinct category. Uh, one was what they called all day, which I imagine the home office or the retirees. Uh, one was night EV, which was, uh, I imagine, people who had, who had uh, fairly high consumption for nobody being home, but relatively low consumption in the daytime and fairly high consumption at night. And then evening heavy. Uh, and if you look at the overall average of the whole mix, it leans a little toward the evening heavy, um, where where we consume our peak at you know somewhere in the six to eight p.m. range, 
Um, right. And uh, and particularly supply wise, that's where their peak stress is because the solar is all petering out to nothing at that point. And uh, and it was interesting that if you were morning heavy, their sweet spot was uh, was. 220 degree azimuth, and that's 40 degrees west of south, so almost southwest. Uh, and oh. and uh, the all day and all night was biased just a couple of degrees, you know, past southwest at 240 degrees. And if you're evening heavy, that was even more reason to to go west. And their sweet spot was 250 degrees. Uh, keep in mind, 270 is due west, so this is within 20 degrees of due west. If your wow. if your peak consumption was heavy, but again, the first lesson was it wasn't that big of a difference. That whole swing between due south and west was pretty damn reasonable. But uh, the whole the whole issue with sizing down the solar system to 60% on the new rate structures was to avoid overproducing what you're consuming because anything you sell to yourself, you're essentially offsetting the retail price at a very high rate and that's awesome. But anything you overflow and send back onto the grid now with the new rules on the on only the three big industrial investor-owned utilities, PG&E being the pertinent one around here, um, all the little municipal and rural electric cooperatives have their own rules. Um, the, the whole point of sizing down to 60% is to avoid overproducing as much as possible. And there's a whole other way to avoid overproducing and that's with batteries and here's where Chris gets to start talking is uh, you know how do you avoid this overproduction problem by adding batteries into the mix yeah so if you really want to have you know more highly controlled self-consumption systems and that, you know, I think the easiest way to look at it is like what they've done in Hawaii, they call the HECO standard to not export at all. Um, and to be a totally self-consuming system and using the grid basically as their backup generator uh, most of the time. And so, really? Well, I know they want to do that in Hawaii because the grid is so small, they just can't take all the solar that's installed down there. But right. isn't that kind of hard on battery cycling here in the States where you don't have that extreme of a set of rules? Um, well, not necessarily in that, you know, it doesn't mean that you're on the batteries all night, every night, um, and to drain them out every day. But definitely to, to take full advantage of the full length of the time of use cycle. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. the primary. Well, that, that's what I wanted to focus on, oh, yeah. you know, particularly in the context of the rate change. The main issues. point is, is that, you know, if the batteries are sized properly with the solar, then, you know, what, what we're. What some of the manufacturers have done now is they've, you know, you can go and get a continental control systems meter. And that goes at your main, 
and that communicates with the battery inverter system so it knows what's going on on that meter main. And, and some of these uh, inverters using that meter can then actually output battery power and, and you know, controlled battery power onto the grid input side. So what's not even on the critical load side of the house, say, because you end up with a secondary load panel of what the battery supports directly should the grid go out, unless you do a whole home backup, right? So, but, you know, one of these can then, you know, actually put out battery power onto the whole system as long as the grid is still up and and not export a single watt of that power, you know, where... And, it, and it's now legal to pump from the batteries onto the grid because that's new. Yeah, and that's you have to actually have the proper interconnection interconnection agreement for that, right? You know, and the right. scenario I was talking about is a scenario where you would have to get an interconnection agreement that you're generally not charging these batteries off the grid. Uh, they want them to be solar charged. They don't want to add that extra load, and that you're not exporting to the grid from the batteries. That's the um, standard agreement, but there are special yeah. agreements where you can actually pump from your batteries onto the grid during those peak rate times in certain circumstances. Yeah, and that's especially what that SGIP program was was made for, the self-generation incentive program, you know, that's been around for some years now. Um, and yeah. and and are are many manufacturers uh setting their systems up so they can do that? Uh, I think I think that it's going in that direction. Um, SMA has methodologies, um, and uh, Schneider Systems has those methodologies with their uh, the XW Pro system. Um, but it's but it's more in depth than even the standard battery backup system. You know, you're getting into 485 meters, and you've got some things that have to communicate with all the pieces of the puzzle directly. And it's a higher level control and communication system, but which I can imagine adds some cost. Yes, it as does. as so do, as do the batteries themselves. Yeah, and this is also you know in the long term, this is all about SunSpec certification and control that the utility can send signals to a system to make sure it doesn't export at different times. You know, it's all the safety stuff that's built in, but this also leads to distributed energy resource and microgrid systems over time. And and let's the grid put more solar on. The more people who have batteries who cooperate with the utility in this way, the more solar we're going to be able to put on because they can draw or offset consumption on those critical demand times at 8 p.m. after the sun's gone down given all the people using off of their batteries instead of off the grid. Yeah. And that, that really is kind of the biggest impact that can be had is to remove your load from the grid is having the greatest impact. And that that's, you know, that's been shown as far as, you know, what that's doing for the amount of infrastructure that has to be rebuilt and built bigger and better than it ever was before. If they're going to put these big wind fields up off of Humboldt, you know, all those lines are getting upgraded. Um, so it's, you know, that's, that's a big deal. And it's, you know, and they're saying that we need 
you know, an enormous amount, you know, of added electrical infrastructure in mm-hmm. this country by distributing these resources. We don't have to put in as much transmission. Yeah, cut deeply into that demand. Well, um, it, it it's also interesting that I was seeing, you know, price differences now with the new NEM3 rules that, you know, you might be seeing, you know, five cents, even nothing for overproduction in the middle of the day in, you know, a generic day, whereas, uh, you know, the the four to nine window is, you know, worth 50 cents or something. And in certain circumstances, uh, you know, they actually ha- are going to be instituting a rate structure that changes by the hour instead of, you know, our standard old noon to six window or now four to nine window, um, uh, where, where it changes by the hour, by the day of the year. Mm. Um, I don't doubt it. I oh, mean, that that's what's in the the legislature. I mean, in the rules, they haven't come out with a new one, and they say you're going to stay on the old and existing rules until we get those worked out. But watch out, people! You'll have a weird true update this year when they finally do switch over to the new system. If you're, well, I guess the people who are already on NEM2 are probably still going to be on it, and it won't affect them immediately. But uh, but for those of you who are on NEM2, you got that benefit for, what, 20 years from when you were turned on? Is that right, Chris? Uh, I'm not 100% sure on I, that. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the case. Um, and, and the same is true for people who turned on, who got permission today. They've got 20 years. From today, on the old rules, uh, where they're basically giving you essentially the retail price for overflow electricity, no matter when it happens. Uh, now they're basically giving you the wholesale, which is, you know, five cents instead of twenty-five or fifty, and. Uh, in certain times, the wholesale rate's actually higher than the retail price, but that's rare, and a very small percentage of the time. Well, it uh, doesn't happen as much since Enron was disbanded. <laughs> <laughs> Not working the system. Um, anyhow, uh, we may have uh, two callers left listening after all that geekiness. Uh, we hoped it was pertinent because we were picking a mainstream topic of uh, mainstream issues. Uh, on a major change that's happening basically overnight. Uh, oh, and I was going to invite callers in, and I got a caller happening anyhow. And so if you want to join the conversation, call 895-2448. Uh, hello, caller. You're live on the air. Hello, gentlemen. Wonderful show. Wonderful <laughs> show. And I just wanted to say that um, I just submitted an application a few weeks ago for the SGIP program. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the conditions in there is that you have to be willing to allow your battery to be uh, uh, drained one time a week for 52 weeks. Wow. Well, so aren't there dif- aren't there different uh, levels of participation? Yeah, there's different things. You can do it more than that, but I believe that's one of the conditions. That that's the minimum. On one of the At least once a week they can do that. Wow. 
yeah, and that's just you know they control that. And but you get time, you get often return awesome returns on that. But of course, that next day, if there's a power outage, you might have to fire up your generator. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, but I mean, I'm also putting in a you know pretty good sized solar array with, uh, and so we decided to go. We could have gone with the Tesla batteries, but I have in uh, phase microinverters. I'm going to put in the IQ eight uh, H's and. And we're, we're dropping, the max our inverters can put out is 55.3 amps. So that goes on a 70-amp breaker. And, um, and so we're going to put in, the S-chip is going to put in the entire N-phase system with the N-phase, you know, switch and the, you know, system controllers and Max, Maxed out for a 70-amp breaker. Max for a 70-amp breaker, yeah. Well, because the N-phase switch is a 200-amp switch, and you can land 80 amps of solar onto it. And so it'll, it'll do a whole house backup with, you know, a 200-amp switch in that uh, controller that is what does your rapid shutdown. And uh, because you have to add various other things because you're islanding in order for your, your IQ-8 can continue it can, can continue to produce in an island when the grid goes down. Island meaning you still have power in a window of your circuits when the grid is down. That's right. Window goes down. Even without batteries, I could still have power. They call it daylight solar, where you can produce, you know, they kind of control. Oh, that's so power. unreliable. It's almost a scam to sell that. Right. And so we are putting in two of their 10 batteries with the S-chip program and all the controllers so the batteries will be there. So, you know, that's 20. And have you, got, have you got any idea how long it's going to be till you get your funds from the S-chip program? Probably a year. <laughs> so, I mean, that's what I'm hearing. I, I actually did the application. I started to do it myself. And then I talked to the guys from you know, one of the local installer companies, and they were like, you know, why don't you try Swell Energy? They kind of do this all the time and know all the ins and outs. And it basically is going to cost me $2,000 for that system to be installed. And cause 2000 It's $27,000-something, and I have to pay $2,000 of that. Wow. Which is basically the bite that. But you gotta well you gotta pay for it all up front, and they'll reimburse you a year from now. You can do that, which is what I actually said I would do, or they will set up financing for you in a bridge loan. And you pay the interest. And you pay the interest. So all I right. just said I'll pay for it. All right, cool. You know, well, if you got that, if you got that, and and actually, that's one point that that I meant to make on our whole discussion earlier, Chris, was, was that the more money you have, the more that leans you toward putting in a battery-based system because the long-term investment, I'm not even talking crazy s paying for 90% of it, um, uh, is, is actually pretty similar. The, the payback time is significantly longer, but the, but the, the levelized cost of electricity, or I guess uh, net present value, would be the best analysis for those of you sure. who are financial geeks. Um, uh, is actually pretty comparable on the battery-based systems as the non-battery systems, but the battery-based systems uh, cost you know twice as much for about the same amount of production. 
Um, right. and well, what I did is I submitted three applications to get into NEEM 2, and uh, two for two different houses on my property and one for my brother. And we significantly oversized them because we were still going to be in NEEM 2, and my brother has two electric cars, and he's going to get a Tesla Cybertruck as soon as uh-huh. they come out. Yeah, I, oh, I've, really, really I've, I've, beefed up, I've beefed up my system design so many times for people who were planning on getting an electric car, and that was not a problem. Yes, and that, that's uh, because on the application, you know, I put, yeah, I'm going to have two electric cars because I was basically doubling my usage, but I still have propane... Uh, dryer. I still have propane kitchen stove. I have propane hot water heater. And so I'm going to be pulling all those out and going to electricity because I really like the idea of being produced my own fuel. I was around in the 1970s when we had the fuel shortages and it really bugged me that I could not produce the fuel to run my cars. Yeah. Well, you you could have. There were were Mother Earth News articles. You could have you could have created a wood gasifier or an ethanol still and done a conversion, done a methane digester and converted your carburetor and built yourself I a scrubber. Into all of those. What? I looked into all of those and they didn't pencil out very well. They didn't pencil out very well. It was a nightmare of work. It uh, wasn't hugely reliable if you didn't do it perfectly. And right. Oh, let me ask you a question again. I. Got tuned into the show late, even though I religiously listened to this show. And uh, you were talking about asthma. And I had called you a couple weeks ago and talked to you about it. Because I told the PG&E I was going to put it at 180 degrees due south. But I'm really, because I'm staying on Neem 2, I'm going to be on Neem 2. I got, you know, a year or two to build this thing. And I'm really debating where I ought to it and i'm leaning more towards southwest but i just caught the end of when you were talking about that if you could just give me a little update on that that'd be that, awesome. that that on the 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 standard current rate structures the anticipated next rate structures and the previous rate structures all of them the sweet spot was way closer to southwest than south for financial returns so southwest is what, Route two ten or somewhere around in there? Uh, let's see, it's uh, it's forty five plus one eighty, so two twenty five. Two twenty five. So you say there'd be nothing wrong. I actually have a better view to the southwest or west than I do. Oh, to then south. then then it's a no brainer. You might even consider going even more west. How far west? At what point do I start tapering w- off the other way? West, west is re- west now? is very reasonable. How's your consumption in the evening? Are you high consumer in the late afternoon, early evening? Yeah, that's usually when I use most because I come back. In then, the house then all the more outside. reason, and you're big and you have batteries. All the more reason you're one of those people who could be, you know, your sweet spot might be twenty percent left of due west. 20 degrees, 20 degrees left of due west. 20 degrees left of due west. According to the studies I was reading this morning, you you fit into that category that you're probably about, your sweet spot financially is probably almost due west. And 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 I I guess I can't say it enough. It doesn't matter that much. 
So I like how the idea of how it looked better pointed more southwest or or well, you know, make south, it southwest. point it the direction that it looks the best in that general direction, and you're going to be great. So I don't know how much difference this makes, but I'm doing a ground mount. We're going to be at about 20 degrees in order to keep from being more than seven feet off the ground with the back of my array, so that I don't have to do engineering. Because it isn't just engineering. The county is going to make me take a engineer up there for snow load for soil soils it's crazy yeah, yeah oh it's crazy keep it under seven feet yeah i'm gonna go under seven feet and <laughs> they, I have, uh, i'm buying bifacial panels so i should get a little bit from the morning on the back of those panels anyway in the summertime not in the winter time that's correct in the winter time well actually in the winter time you'll get it if you got snow on the ground I had some this winter. Yeah, in, in Wisconsin, that's a significant factor. Here, it's not. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate your show. So thank you very much for answering my questions. And awesome. Enjoy. Take care. Right, bye. 895-2448. So, Chris, what else do you want to say about batteries while we got nobody on the line? Um, well, I'm Particul really particularly as it involves uh, NEM3. Have you have you looked at their projected new rate structures that aren't in effect yet? Yeah, I haven't. I haven't dug down into it super deeply, um, so I can't say that I know you know as clearly as you do. Um, oh, I don't know it very clearly. You know, I saw the initial you know projection of what the the tariffs would actually look like, but I hadn't run any numbers yet for anybody for it. Well, I haven't either. I've so far been relying on other people who've run the numbers and. They're coming up with pretty similar statements. Yeah. Um, you, so, you don't want to overproduce, which fits with one of your earlier statements. The, yeah, and I, and I think there's, you know, maybe some room for not making the solar too small, because if you're really going to use batteries to, you know... Oh, no, no, no. The whole small solar argument is out the window once you put in batteries. I, I mentioned that once, but I'll say it again, that... If you put in batteries, then, you know, the sweet spot went back to, you know, 90% or something of your annual consumption. And remember, when when we were talking without batteries, I was talking 90% on the old rules and 60% on the new rules. And you were talking 100%, 110% on the old rules, but that was for other reasons besides just finances. And, but once you've got batteries in the picture, it behooves you to have a larger solar array. Absolutely no question in all the analyses I've looked at. Yep. And, and it begs, you know, a very fine kind of design process to really custom build that system so that it does what's expected. Because yeah. Oh, they're, they're, talking, they're talking about you downloading your, your annual hourly or even 15 minute data from your yeah from exactly. your utility and doing a doing a spreadsheet analysis or churning it through somebody else's uh, analysis software yeah at this point i think it really begs the use of software because the modeling of those things goes into a really complex realm where you know that's that's where i i use a really advanced design software that was developed off of NREL. I, 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 spent, I spent two months custom doing a spreadsheet. It wasn't even software. It was just a spreadsheet yeah. to Absolutely. get it to match the 
tiered time of use structure where residential rate structures in California were the only place in the country that had such a thing, trying to get it to match somebody's electric bill based on their actual consumption. And it took me like two months to do that and another week to throw the solar on top and get some financial returns on what your benefit would be to have the solar and 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 looking looking at the rate structures now i'm thinking oh my god i've got to have a phd in software programming in order to be able to do that yeah so you know and part of the reason why is you know we can throw into this system the full comprehensive data of a you know hour snapshot or 15 minute snapshot of your entire usage and see it all graphed out and model, say, okay, well, you know, we'll throw in solar in the range of eight and then maybe, you know, give a range on batteries and, you know, so many different things and just say, hit the button and see what the X, you know, LCOE, life cycle cost of energy, and like what you were saying, the net present value of the systems are and find that monetary sweet spot and then start talking about use cases and what's most important. What's most you know, important to you, the customer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we put, you know, then maybe push that design more towards a right, little bit exactly. more storage. Like the, really dial the solar in tight with the storage. The same way I was, I was biasing my angle even more to the west when he had a better view to the west and more shade to the sure. east. The same sort of yeah. thing. And he thinks it looks that good. Yeah. You know. And it'll produce yeah. better. Hey, we've got multiple callers. Let's okay. hopefully take a patient one. Are you still there, caller? I am. Hey, you're it's live me. on the air. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, it's, it's me, Barbara, with an hey, Barbara. off-grid question. What's Hi. the off-grid question? Hey. We've been all on-gridding okay. tonight. I know. We've been so neglecting off the off-griders. Yeah, okay. Well, it's our turn now. Yeah. Okay, so if we want to go all the way electric, we can get some federal help and get an induction range and a heat pump. But can we do that with off-grid? You could, but the operating costs, the upfront costs, and the operating costs would, would be outrageous. Uh, you know, I would well, be Oh, I definitely got Chris, say it, uh, you're getting fuzzy again. Uh, just saying, we've definitely got some off-grid clients that have gone with an induction cooking. Right, uh, but 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 space heating summer. electrically off yep. the grid. Yeah, that, that too. That's uh, you. Too. You got to have some big big systems, Barbara. You'd have to have about twenty times bigger system than what you got. Times bigger, yes. I'm pulling that number out of places well, where photons don't travel. Know. What's that? I don't know what people's situations are, but, you know, a client built a new home. Um, it's a family lives there. It's two adults and one teenager. Uh, it's about 1,100 square feet, maybe 1,200 square feet. It's got high-pitched roofs, 45 degrees. They do have uh, seven kilowatts of solar. I think Barbara uh, has less than two. Seven, seven point four kilowatts of solar, but they do have two heat pumps, and it's a well. 
And well, you know, but the, they do have. I, gas I, I don't gas. mind. I don't mind seeing the bidirectional heat pump because if you put in a system big enough to cover you in the winter, Barbara, on your normal expectations, not counting heating, you would have enough to do air conditioning the summer half or even three quarters of the year. My concern is you having enough to rely wholly on your electric system to drive a heat pump when you go for a month of cloudy weather like you can have here. Right. Well, as far as heat, I have a wood stove now. Right. Keep, keep so the wood stove and rely on it. And when you have extra electricity... Sure, you can use the heat pump in reverse to heat instead of air condition, but I'm nervous. I'm nervous. Say it again. Absolutely. I'd love to have air conditioning for some of the horrible days in the summer, just the ones 100 and Oh, shoot. You, you, you could have air conditioning most of the summer if you, if you put in enough solar to cover... Without doubt, all of your winter loads, you would have enough to run air conditioning every day. That's typical now. Oh, so. But the I heating. Have to get the, a lot more solar than batteries. Um, you probably, if for the air conditioning, you wouldn't even need that much battery, because our our temperatures drop so fast when the sun goes away. You don't need much electrical storage. You need to be cooling in the. Noon to six or seven time frame, and you so you're drawing straight yeah. from the solar array and not from the batteries, and you're not wearing batteries out, and you don't need the battery capacity. As soon as you start talking about providing heat for a long cloudy spell, then we're talking massive batteries or massive arrays. Okay, well, using the Wovis, you know, it's a pain, and it's got, you got to pay attention, and it's ashes all over, but it's doable. There, the two things that bother me most are breathing that propane when I turn my propane stove on, because that's really been getting me lately. Yeah, well, ranges... And I don't even like to use the oven. Ranges aren't that bad, because they don't consume nearly as much total energy per day as a heating system. Uh, you know, you tend to have that burner on for, you know, 15 minutes, not six hours a day. Um, yeah, but that's how often, you know, that's, you know, twice a year tops. So it shouldn't be part of your decision making. You can throw on a generator the night before to make sure you're primed for that Thanksgiving gathering. And some of those really good quality induction stops have 50 and 100 watt simmer burners. <coughs> really low. Yeah, really low as far as, you know, leaving something. 50 watt simmer burners. That's just astounding. I can't believe that's even called a simmer. That's keep, keep tepid. Right. But induction, it's a very efficient transfer. So it's pretty viable. Okay, well, I I think I need a consultation. So I also need a consultation <laughs> well, on you, my rental one, one, while we're at it. One heads up, 
is that you would need a much larger inverter system to run an electric range than you have. Yeah, so the induction stops, the smaller ones, I think, start around 1,800 watts um, is where they max out. Yeah. And, and they have, and they go up from there, you know, they have much bigger ones. Um, yeah. But that would be a cooktop. That would not include a, a range. <coughs> yeah, well, she wants to do a turkey, man. Right. And she's going to have, well, she's going to have stuff on the top burners, too. Yeah, top burners, but I'll just go down to my family for Christmas and Thanksgiving. There you go. There you go. How old are you, Barbara? It's time to go take advantage of your relatives. (laughs) Well, I will. In the meantime, on these horrible days near 100 and over 100, I just need some air conditioning. Oh, yeah. I really would like to have an induction oven. Oven. Well, how range. about how about just range? range? You know, you can buy single burner induction ranges that your inverter would have no problem running. Countertop hot plate for fifty bucks. Well, I did not know that. Check it out. Oh. Check it out. Okay. just no turkeys for you hey we gotta go hey take care Barbara thanks for the call Okay. and I'm afraid we've had multiple callers here but uh, do we do we dare where we must uh... hello caller we gotta be really brief what's up that's me yep that's you sorry okay um about the uh, magnetic um heating elements do they actually do a real simmer because a friend of mine bought one and it goes on and off like a heating pad or like your typical electrical burner where it goes to you know thermo high and low you know i don't know i've never had one chris do you have any experience do they cycle on and off my guess is they would be pretty capable of of Ramping up and ramping down according to the temperature. Well, that's what we don't want. We want for simmering. This is why we cook. to stay low, low and constant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's what I'm used to. But if it's measuring the temperature of the pot, it would make sense for it to oscillate its output if it's overheating the pot and turning up if it's underheating the pot. No, yeah, I'm I would about- rather just you know modulate it rather than turn on and off if that's what they are doing. I'm yeah. not sure about that myself. Well, uh, the old the old classic ranges went you know basically had a thermostat that would heat up to a certain point, turn off, go to nothing, and not the old ones, the new ones. They, I've never seen one that doesn't do it. Yeah, maybe I'm just having all of them. High all end of them. electrical, but. The point of gas stove is you can put on a low, consistent heat. You're not boiling it, then turning it off. Well, that's yeah. You know. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe callers can fill us in on our next show, but we got to wrap it up. Well, I'm sorry because I had about six more topics. Oh shoot, on, shoot! Okay. You got to wait two weeks or buy me a beer. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Bye. Take care. All right. Well, hey, Chris, we're at the top of the hour. We've been listening to the Renewable Energy Hour. And 
hopefully, Chris, you're back in the state. Maybe I can have you back in two weeks. Yep. All right. All right. We'll, we'll keep this show alive. And anybody else who wants to help out on the Renewable Energy Hour, we've been going for over 25 years, not me the whole time. I've, I've been here for over 20. Oh, and uh, Bill is gone. And uh, I'd, I'd like to see it go on, but uh, we're, we're stretched thin. So anybody who wants to join, uh, contact the station and get yourself put in touch. All right. We'll see you in two weeks, everybody. This has been the Renewable Energy Hour. Good night, Chris. Good night. Thank you. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.